Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray, and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> our collect for the day actually sets up the kind of attitude which is displayed in this main character of this passage we're going to study. Um, have, you, uh, have you ever started off on a, on a trip or out in a day, and in the very early uh, hours of the morning you uh, may have dense fog and, and maybe heavy cloud cover, and then the, the further you go and as the day wears on, the, clouds, the, the fog burns off, the, the clouds move away, and then you end up with a glorious sunshiny day. And the, the, the fog has lifted and you're able to see well. Um, that's, that, is, that's, that is a common thing. Um, it happens here enough uh, in Virginia where we lived. We were in the mountains and we would see that kind of thing happen all the time. In some places where we'd lived there, um, you were kind of up among the clouds the way they, they rolled through anyway. This past, uh, the past few days, Becky and I went over in the eastern side of the state near Canaan Valley and rode motorcycles with some people. And uh, Friday, we had a day very much like that, where uh, we, uh, for a short time anyway, in the very early hours of the morning as we were getting started, we had such dense fog, we were only going like 35 miles an hour and still couldn't hardly see any distance in front of you. So it was a little little sketchy for a little while, and then it all cleared up, and then it ended up being a glorious day. That whole clearing of the fog is how I was thinking of uh, of this passage. In, to the, in today's lesson from from chapter 7 here as we begin. Um, this, this lesson is about the fog of personal misconception being lifted as one personally encounters Jesus. And I think we're going to see that as this story unfolds, there's a distorted perspective of others. There's the enlightened perspective um, through the lens of the gospel that the believer has. And then we're going to look at the divine perspective of Jesus. So we're going to begin with that distorted perspective of others. In verse 1 it says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So to get the the setting, Jesus has just finished that sermon on the plain, as as some commentators refer to it, um, thinking it's a different sermon than the Sermon on the Mount, and it's not just a, a different account in Luke of that same sermon. So the Sermon on the Plain is finished, where Jesus was instructing his disciples. And as he finishes that, he's going into Capernaum. And then this centurion, which is the equivalent of a uh, <coughs> the Roman Empire's uh, equivalent to a modern-day army captain, uh, who would oversee a hundred men, one of his men was sick to the point of death. And he must have valued him, say, more than, you know, 
recognizing he's a, a particular tool in the, in the tool shed kind of thing. Uh, th- there must have been great value. The way, the way, this, um, the way it says in verse 2 uh, at the end, it says, who was highly valued by him. That indicates there must have been like a, uh, a personal connection between the two. This is like a friend of his. And so the centurion is moved to help him. And he hears of Jesus coming, hears what Jesus has done, and he reaches out to him. Um, but this is such a strange bit here where uh, in 3 it says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. Well, who is this Roman centurion, this Gentile, who gets the Jewish elders to do his errands? This, this, is, this is just weird. Jewish elders wouldn't typically be doing anybody's bidding or running errands for people. And then the fact that he's a Gentile makes this stranger even so. And then typically there would have been the history between the, like the Roman army and Israel. There would have been more contentious and there wouldn't have been um, such a uh, camaraderie as we see here. Well, he evidently was very well respected by the elders of Israel. And, and there's no discussion about they had to be talked into it. And they seem to be very willing to go to Jesus and plead his case on his behalf. Um, and this, this man must have had a lot of clout. Um, and and w- we understand in the context of, of his uh, army where he could say to one go and another one come and go do this and it's done. We, that's easy enough for some of us to understand. But that's exactly what's happening with the elders of Israel here as he asks them to go for him, and they, and they do. And it says they pleaded with him earnestly, saying he is worthy. He loves our nation, and he's donated lots of money so we could build our synagogue. That's essentially what they're saying there. Um, the, the Romans would have seen all religions essentially the same. There's not one more true than another, and any could be used for their benefit. If it if it if if it were advantageous to them to uh, buddy up to a particular uh, religion, it, they they would easily do that. So, knowing that that's kind of the background, can this centurion be trusted? Is he is he really this good guy? Well, he certainly seems like he has um, sincere motives, and not he's not just an insincere person trying to use them. Um, and given their testimony of how generous he was, uh, the the language of loving our nation, I think that means that he was um, a God fearer. That's a lot of times. Sometimes in the Bible, it will speak of somebody being a, a God fearer, which is a Gentile who recognizes who God is, but they don't um, submit to becoming a uh, proselyte to the Jewish faith. So they, they, don't, they don't have to go through all of those things, but yet they live as a Gentile and they still actually worship this one true God. And that would, that would indicate that there's been a, um, in that culture where there's the gods for everything, somewhere along the line, this man has chosen to do away with all these other gods and choose the one true God to worship. And the elders described him as a good man. 
this is that's background. You get into what's what's going on here in this passage and what's in it for us. This this misconception um, or distorted perspective of others is what we're going to see. And even the elders of uh, Israel they describe him as a good man, and they describe him by his external uh, qualities. Said he loves our nation. He helped build our synagogue. But they they didn't say. This man is low and gentle. He's humble in heart. That's, that's not how they described him. They described him rather superficially by describing his external actions. But this shouldn't be a surprise to us that that's the way they would describe somebody because this is how they too have been relating to their religion where it has all, it's been boiled down to external actions with little implications from the heart. So they, the, the idea that they're not saying this man is, is uh, humble, he may be powerful, but he's a very humble man, as this story shows. They, they don't say that. There's the, the descriptions they give are very external. So in that, it, and, and it, I, think the, I think the story shows the distorted view that others have of us or we have of others. <coughs> um, I frequently hear about how good people are. You ask people about somebody, and they'll say, "Well, he's a he's a good man," or you know, "She's a good woman." And and a lot and, and a lot of times, those things are very true. But are we looking simply at the external qualities? And for you, how would somebody describe you um, that's in your that's in your circle of reference, people you know, but not the, not in that intimate way? That uh, would people know you well enough? To really talk about who you are, or would they describe who you are based on your external actions, and then kind of you know chalk it up as she's a good woman or he's a good man because I see that person doing this or this. Do you know many people? Do you know any people well enough, or that, that know you well enough to see through the fog, if you will, and call it like it really is? Cause we because we're good. We're good at even hiding who we really are uh, from even those who are closest to us in many cases. Do you know people who um, would just simply be able to relay some of those external qualities without being able to discuss what your heart is like? If, if that being contrasted with your spiritual life, your inner thought life... Um, would would that thought life, would that spiritual life, measure up in the in, in these peripheral people who are able to say he's a good man, she's a good woman, based on these external qualities? If they were able to recognize and evaluate your thought life, your spiritual life, would those things be in the same category? Would they measure just as high? I don't think that the centurion thought his were equal. I don't think he thought of himself the same as those elders from Israel um, thought of him. He, he knew himself better than just those external qualities. So we're, we're going to see next that enlightened perspective through the lens of the gospel. So in verse 6, it says, And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. 
but say the word and let my servant be healed. Well, perhaps he heard, you know, maybe it got reported back to him what the elders had said to Jesus. And, and may, maybe he's, he's saying, I didn't say I was worthy. They said I was worthy. Maybe he kind of has to nip this in the bud. I, I think it's rather interesting how this story unfolds. He takes the initiative, goes to the elders and asks them to go on his behalf to Jesus to see if he would come and heal. And then we hear what they, or we get to read what they said to uh, Jesus. And he seems to have a corrective of some sort here. And whether it's the second thoughts he has, and, and he understands the etiquette at the time between the Jew and the Gentile, and maybe when he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, maybe he recognizes that distance between the Gentile and the Jew. Maybe he recognizes himself as a true sinner. And maybe he recognizes who Jesus really is. Which is that appears to be the real case. It appears to me that he's not looking for the latest... Um, you know, snake oil salesman coming down the road who's performing healings. He's looking for the Messiah. Though being not a Jew, I think he's still looking for the Messiah, and I think he recognizes the Messiah in his sight. So for whatever that reason is, he sent this, then he sends this delegation. And when, you know, and as you're reading this, and you do, you do, we do our daily readings, and, you know, most of these gospel stories... The parables, are, we're familiar with them. And uh, in my head, I had it as he was talking directly to Jesus. But he sent a delegation still. He didn't allow Jesus to get yet in his home. He sent a group of friends to him. And, he's, and he's try, there's, there's an effort here to kind of maybe have a corrective action or at least present himself as um, lowly, humble, contrite, um, I, I think he probably, there's, there's this thing where in who this guy is, the idea of giving orders is, is in him. And there's something here in this corrective that's coming that he didn't want Jesus to think he's giving him orders. But he knew that, um, so he may have known what the elders said. And so he, he wants this corrective. Whatever that reason is, he sends these, he sends that, uh, delegation of friends they they go out and they meet the elders and jesus and uh and he says lord do not trouble yourself for i am not worthy to have you come under my roof therefore i did not presume to come to you you see he he could see himself as he really is was as he really was he he had seen who jesus is and what he had done and it's it's in that contrast he knows his position before a holy God. And he knew that he did not deserve an audience with Jesus. He was very aware of his sin. And this is the beauty of the gospel. I, I, I think this is the beauty of the gospel. And I think this is where the church fails in its preaching of the gospel. I talk to anybody in any church and they're going to say their church, yes, that preaches the gospel. Well, then here, here's a measuring uh, gauge. If the church is really, me- if the church is really preaching and believing the gospel and bre- believing in free grace, then how comfortable are you in your sin? And I don't mean we should be so comfortable that we just want to continue in sin. No, the the Holy Spirit wants invading into our hearts. There's this battle going on. But how how uh, self-effacing can you be in your church? 
How real can you be? How authentic can you be admitting your failures and your sins among those people you go to church with? Oh, Lord, I would never do that if that's the response you get from your person you're talking to. And you might understand that they're really not preaching the gospel. Because the gospel frees us to be just who we are. And this whole thing of putting on the masks goes away. And in our American Christianity church culture, we're good, very good, at putting on the right masks at the right time. But to live authentically before the Lord, who knows our sin, through the gospel, which... This is this, if if the church has this messed up, it's because they really believe that our merits or our behavior will earn his favor. Because that's how we're conditioned. We're just conditioned to think that, and then since we pop out and we get here, we're treated that way in every area of life. But the gospel is different. It says, "Here's your fa- here's here's my favor, and I've set my favor upon you, and you are no more." or less of my child from when conversion happens till glory happens. You are as accepted as you will ever be. And therefore, because you're accepted, you are freed to say, yes, I am a sinner. And the Lord has been very gracious to me and is cleaning me up and working on me. And little bit by little bit, I am able to put sin to death because of the Holy Spirit working inside of me. But we would be quick, as believers in the real gospel, to admit our failures and our sins. And we would have a comfort about that, because there's this assurance that we're not being measured by our performance. And I find this to be very freeing. That makes me want to say, hallelujah. I don't want to be measured by my performance. I understand the concept, and I have to fight this all the time. You know, if I do something decent at all for long, I'm going to think I deserve that grace, which is like most people think, but that's not what grace is. God sets his love upon you, this one-way love, and he pulls you from darkness and into the light. This is the true gospel. But where the gospel is preached, sin can be openly dealt with. We are undone. It would be a shame to have come to Christ and only quit a couple of habits and think that that's what Christianity is all about. No, it's a lifelong process of the Holy Spirit cleaning us up and putting sin to death and then coming alive in Him. The Christian, like this man, is is very aware of his actions and his corrupt tendencies and habits. So it's not just outward actions. The, The true believer is very aware of his corrupt heart. He's amazed at the depth of his depravity. C.S. Lewis said, the symptom of the regenerate life is a permanently horrified perception of one's natural corruption. He goes on to say, the true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. C.S. Lewis uses some very vivid language that I wouldn't have come up with, is why I quote him. That's why we can be comfortable in saying, O wretched man that I am. Because Jesus came while we were yet sinners and called us to himself. John Calvin describes, in order to know ourselves, we must know God. And when we see the holiness of God, we are left undone. We, we, don't, we, we can't stand in the holiness of God. 
And so for those who believe, they will be conscious of sin. Now, there are some flavors of Christianity that have just like quit talking about sin altogether. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want people to feel bad about themselves. So we'll just not talk about sin. We're certainly not going to call any sins out because we want you to feel good. And we'll talk about grace and we'll talk about love. But we don't talk about discipline. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about suffering of because of your own actions or the actions of others because of sin. So there's no category for that. There's no category for that. So what you end up with when you've removed sin from the equation is something entirely different than Christianity, really. Now, they, they still meet in buildings that we would recognize as Christian churches. They, they do things that other Christians do. But this, this theology that has been developed is no longer really Christianity. You may find some true Christians in places like that, but even that, that, uh, that faith is a weak faith because it's not the whole of the gospel. And on the other side, there are, there are churches and, or, or flavors of Christianity that almost only want to focus on sin. Well, they too, short, they, they, they've truncated the gospel. And then because of this, it puts people into slavery to performance. And it becomes very legalistic. And the sins that they are willing to talk about, it's not, it's, it, it's in that shameful way because nobody wants to have to confess any sins. And in that concept, if, if you have sinned without confessing everything perfectly before the Lord, you'll perish. If that's really the gospel, that's not good news at all. And the reason that becomes truncated is because what that does is makes us focus on those external actions. I didn't do this and I didn't do that. Or I did do this and therefore I need to confess that. But my friends, if, if you're like me, you understand Lewis's cesspool comment. My nostril is attentive to my cesspool a lot. And I would have to stay busy in confession if that theology is true, if I'm going to die without, a, without confessing every sin and I will perish, then I really don't have time for much of anything else. I, what I really need to do is confess. And once that's done, what I need to do, oh, well, I need to confess and confess and confess and confess. And if you say, wow, Jim, you're a mess, I'd have to say you're right. And you are too. You may not be as aware of the mess you are, but there's freedom in this. Where, where if, if I'm not trying to please the Lord in the sense of earning my right to be in community, community with him, in fellowship with him, then if I'm, not, if I'm not doing that, if I am just his, just like I was with my parents, never a day, never a day in my uh, life did I wonder whether or not my dad or mom was my dad or mom. I never wondered whether... I would be safe to go home. And more and more, the more I live, the more blessed I understand I was, and, I, and rare, that my story is. I ne- never had to wonder about anything. Never wondered about love. I, and believe me, I screwed up a lot of things as a child and then as adults, as an, as an adult. And, you know, I will today and I will tomorrow. And mom and dad, if they were still alive, they'd still love me and they would still accept me and they would still let me know that I was theirs. This is the kind of love that God has for you. It's this one-way love that he sets his love on you and it's out of that love that you then want 
to live for him. And this is not of your own doing. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. He's the one who's driving this whole process. And this is why we call it the perseverance of the saints. He will persevere alongside you, and you will have interest in persevering. Why? Because you're his. I never, never in my life was I interested in abandoning my family. Never was I interested in not being a Sally. Never was I interested in not doing what my mother would have expected of me. And she was short. I could take her as I grew up. So I wasn't afraid by cowering down. I loved her because she loved me. She loved me beyond measure. Those things are very real. And when you recognize this love that God has for you, it changes your want-tos. But even in your changing of your want-tos, when you think you've achieved it and you're good to go, you're way off the mark. We have misunderstood his holiness. So finally, we see the divine perspective of Jesus. Verse 9 says, um, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. He marveled at him. And then turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The centurion knows that Jesus can heal from a distance as well as up close. He has this tremendous faith. It is, and this is odd that this man would have such faith. And he compared his authority that he's under and, and his ability to delegate to that of Jesus' authority and his ability to give direction and have things happen. When Jesus heard of his faith, he marveled, it says. What must that be like that Jesus would marvel at his faith? In Luke 4, Jesus marveled because of Israel's unbelief. And now the only, so this is only the second time in, in, the, in the scriptures where it says that Jesus marveled. He marvels at the centurion's belief. Why do I think this is so strange? Well, again, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. So he's not a, he, he didn't have the covenant advantages. We talk about being in the covenant, being, having covenant children, raising kids up in the admonition and nurture of the Lord so that they never have to go through life without recognizing how much he loves them. And those stories of the faith, which go back still to, yes, to Genesis 1, are told to our, our children, and, and we're directing them to Jesus intentionally with each story. He didn't have that. He didn't have that. He, he, he was a pagan. He, he would have grown up as a, as a uh, regular, normal Gentile, and somewhere along the line, he has recognized the true, one true God. So, he didn't have the covenant benefits. He also had a very powerful position in the military. And I've discussed a little bit about the contentious nature between the military and those of faith. So, it would seem unlikely that he, a military captain, if you will, would have been the kind of guy that's going to come to faith. Because he, in this position, which he's, he's recognizing what power is, where he can delegate and have things done. It does, he, this doesn't fit the, the stereotypical humbly coming to Jesus and receiving him. He, this man must have been wealthy as well, since it says, well, he's the one who built our synagogue. Evidently, he gave and gave a lot to the Jewish community. Well, what does Jesus say about being rich? He says that it's 
harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So evidently this man did. Evidently this man had riches, but he's able to lay, was able to lay those aside and come to Jesus. He knew his need for God. And this man was certain of Jesus' ability to heal. In Hebrews 11, 1, about what faith is, it says, and you're familiar, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So this man had faith for something in the future. It's not that he was believed. There's, there's history. There's, there are things in the past which allows this man to exercise faith for something happening in the here and now or toward the future because of what he's relying on in history. And, and he's believing that Jesus can heal. He's believing that his servant can be healed. And he's believing that he's willing and able to receive mercy. He, he had, for a powerful position, a powerful man, he has a very humble way about him. And in this passage, we see then what faith looks like, which is pleasing to God. A faith that's pleasing to God is a faith that sees itself and then a faith that sees God. And this is true faith. And it doesn't matter whether one is a Jew or a Gentile or what culture or country anyone is from. This is the same thing going on here. Biblical faith is seeing clearly. The biblical faith is seeing without the fog in your way. The fog has lifted and, and, and it brings clarity and reality to your present circumstances. As you're walking through life, your faith will bring you the reality. The, those who oppose faith would say reality is something entirely different and, and your faith confuses that. If God's the designer of all things, then the more we understand him and understand the faith and more we're in faith, the more he enables us to see what is true. So how do you see reality? Do you see yourself as you are? Do you see Christ for who he is? To do so is to see with the eyes of faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.